All right, we're live. Uh, so this week we're continuing on with our study of Revelations. We're going to be looking at the next part, uh, Revelations chapter 2 and 3, uh, about the churches. Uh, during uh, this discussion, we're going to be looking at two possible interpretations. Uh, and whichever you choose or subscribe to doesn't really detract one bit from the book or its relevance. Uh, they both are fitting and both could fit just fine and do not really affect one way or the other. But the first thing or question that brings to mind is why these seven churches? When I read the list of churches, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled. Uh, Ephesus, of course, is familiar, but where is Thyatira? Thyri- no, it's really called Thyatira. Uh, why would these churches be included and not Corinth or Colossae or be included? Uh, why these seven? By this point in history, there had been dozens of churches that sprung up under the founding of the apostles. Uh, so why these seven in particular? Uh, some say it's because they're, these seven are just a represent, uh, representation of issues throughout the ages. Uh, these churches had things going on that all churches will have to face and all churches would have to deal with. So we kind of picked these seven to represent different characteristics uh, all, the way up to, to, all the way up to where we're at now. This means that we too can find answers to our struggles and instructions on Jesus gives us for, for our churches. And one of the first things we're going to be looking at is the fact that this in, these seven churches is a representation of the church history altogether. From when Jesus first started to Jesus' return. These are the seven ages of the church in history. And it matches up pretty good. Uh, and like I said, whether you subscribe to this one or not, it, it doesn't really matter, but it's still very interesting. And uh, we're going to look at this one first. The first church mentions is Ephesus, whose name means the desired one. This church uh, period would represent the first church period starting at around 30 A.D. It was characterized by hard work, fervent evangelism at the start, but soon began to fade away due to severe persecutions and difficulties that arose by the end of this church period, causing many in the church to leave their first love, Jesus Christ, and the mission uh, of spreading the gospel, to go underground and to seek safety. The next period would be Smyrna, which names means the bitter one as mirth, which is, is included in his name. Now, myrrh was a plant when crushed produced a very sweet-smelling aroma. Uh, and we all got plants like that right now. I know uh, we've got one recently, a popcorn plant. When you crush the leaves, it smells like popcorn. Uh, but we've all got hyacinths or, or lavender or different flowers, roses, that when you crush them, I mean, they really produce a fragrance. Well, this one was particularly strong and very, very sweet-smelling when crushed. Uh, in fact, it was often used at grave sites and tombs to cover the smell of death and decay because they didn't always get to bury them. Sometimes they just put them in a cave or a tomb. And as you can imagine, that smell is going to start to escape. Yes. Uh, and so they used this to kind of hide the decay of smell. Now, during this church period, no less than 10 Roman emperors would persecute and trample down the church, would crush the church. But just like that flower... When crushed, it produced a sweet-smelling fragrance that was attracted to other people and was pleasing to God as they was holding up for his gospel no matter what. The next church uh, period would be Pergamon, which names means the elevated one or married to. Uh, 
During this church period, which started around 312 A.D., was when Emperor Constantine took power and instead of persecuting the church, he joined it to his government. He made it part of his rule. Uh, the devil, it seems, realized that he couldn't destroy the church with persecution as he had been trying to up to now. So now he kind of changed his tactics. And, and instead, he married the church to the government. That is, he put the government in control of the church and religion. Now, we all seen what the government can do when it takes over something, when it puts its hand to something. And it was no different than with the church. Uh, it, it, it nearly destroyed the church as well. Uh, during this period, a uh, great many pagans and pagan practices were brought into the church. We see this in verse uh, 214 of Revelations. Uh, it says, But I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept back, or kept teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat, sacrifice, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to sexual immorality. What they did was they, uh, and it was during this time of also that they introduced angel worship, and the worship of saints was introduced. Idols were made and images sold uh, to introduce uh, to the, for religious services in order to bring profit to the people in charge of the church and to the government, and also to make it more like all the other pagan groups that went around and had all their little idols and little false gods. So it made it more attractive to them. Uh, also during this period of time, the idea of purgatory. And the teaching about being able to buy one out was also introduced. Leading a great many people to believe that they could sin all they want and live however they want to and even die in sin. But could get forgiveness in purgatory or have a rich loved one buy their way out of purgatory. And even leave behind the money in your will to give to the church to buy yourself out of purgatory. So you can go out and do whatever you want to. Just make sure you got enough in your will to buy yourself out and you get to go to heaven. This, this is what the church has started teaching. Kind of sounds like teachers of the Catholic Church today, in a way. Well, and it, it, it kind of led into that. I mean, it, that started too uh, with uh, with them being introduced into Rome and stuff that way also. Also, during this period, last rites were first introduced. That is, a person can receive forgiveness of sins at the point of death. The next church period is... Help me out again. Tyrant. Uh, name means continual sacrifice. This period would begin uh, 607 A.D. During this period, the first pope was installed, uh, Boniface IV. This era also started the Dark Ages. It was during this period that the gospel light grew very dim indeed. The churches became more and more like Babylon instead of what it was meant to be. False religions and sects became uh, sects, different sects of uh, religion became more and more prevalent, dividing the church further and further and further. Uh, during this period, the sale of indulgence began. This was a teaching that uh, started in order to raise money for the church and for the states and for leaders. The way indulgences would work was you gave one-third, that was the formula, you had to give one-third of your salary for the year to the church. The church would give you a piece of paper saying that so-and-so is forgiven for all sins, past, present, future for the year. So you could go out and just do whatever you want. You could go out and get murder, whatever you want to. As long as you gave one-third of your salary to the church, you got to get out of jail car free. And that, and that was first in, uh, introduced during this period of time. Next is Sardis, uh, whose name is means the escaping one or the coming out from among them. 
this started in 1520 A.D. This is the Great Reformation Movement. When people like Martin Luther leading the way back to try to restore the church to the one that more closely resembled the church of the Bible, the church that Jesus Christ established. To get back to God and the true worship and away from all these false pagan practices and worships. To kind of set things back right again. Uh, next is Philadelphia. Now we all know what Philadelphia is. It's brotherly love. We've all, we've all heard of that. <clears throat> and this started about 1750 AD according to this interpretation. This period was characterized by fervent love and concern for all mankind uh, and the lost. It began a great revival period in history, especially in Europe and the British Isles and spreading all the way over here to the United States as well. This sparked the modern missionary movement, which still goes on to this day uh, in some aspects and led uh, others to Christ and to spread the good news uh, to all men. And uh, we kind of see this alluded to in verses 3, 8. It says, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. You have a little power and have followed my word and you have not denied me. So God opened up this door for a great revival and this started well with that church period. And lastly, we come to Laodicea, whose name means the people's opinion or the people's way. Uh, this started in 1900, so just, just a little over 100 years ago would have been where this church period started. This is the most apostate church period ever to exist. And that's really saying something when we looked at some of these other practices that we've looked at and we saw how they done. So that's really saying something. This is the lukewarm church, the do-nothing church, the apathetic church. The sad thing, according to verse 17, is they didn't even realize or don't even realize how bad off they are. It says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is the compromising church, the politically correct church. Instead of preaching God and Jesus Christ, they have motivational speakers who never even mention Jesus' name. Prosperity is the main theme and goal of the church, tickling the ears to make everyone feel all warm and cozy uh, where they are at and uh, where you don't have to really do anything. Just come and listen. This would be an age where people's opinions and feelings become more important than God's Word. Starting to sound a little familiar maybe. Uh, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. They just interpret it, reinterpret it rather, or explain it away as, well, that was then and God doesn't really mean that for us today. They teach things that God said were, that were abomination and evil are now somehow okay and acceptable. Teaching things that God said that one who practices such things cannot enter the kingdom of heaven have now changed it to, well, that's okay. Set themselves up as judge instead of God. And it seems to me just kind of so accurate that it's scary. And I think that's kind of the idea behind it, I believe. Uh, to know and realize the fact that not only are we in the last days, the last dispensation, but we are also the last chapter of that dispensation. If this interpretation is true, there's not going to be another period. This is it. So when this church period's over, Jesus is coming. So. And then on down at the end of it, it says, and 
Yeah. And that makes it more interesting. That's exactly where we're going next. So now that we've looked at this interpretation as these being the seven church ages, we're going to go back and just look at the churches individually, historically. And like I said, this interpretation is that God just picked these seven churches because they had issues that would be throughout all, all time and that would help us to glean them. So we're going to start off and we're going to first look at the church of Ephesus. So that'd be two, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 uh, if y'all like to follow along with me. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your labors and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people and you have put to those who call themselves apostles to the test and they are not for you found them to be false. And you have, you have a perseverance and have endured on account of my name and have not become weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent from, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the seven churches to those who overcomes, I will grant him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so Ephesus. Ephesus is the mother church of all Asia. Uh, its city population at this time had roughly 225,000 people. It was a great metropolis and commercial center of Asia. Its temple of Diana was said to be one of the seven wonders of the world that people would travel all over the world just to come and see. Kind of like the Eiffel Tower or the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something like that. This would just attract the world travelers from all over. It was so, such a uh, building. It was there 40 years before Paul had done his most successful work uh, during A.D. 54 and 57. Such a multitude of converts to Christ that almost overnight the church became one of the most powerful influences in the city and soon one of the most famous churches in the whole world. After the death of Paul, Timothy is said to spend most of his time here in Ephesus. And there suffered martyrdom himself under Domination, the same persecutor that sent John to Patmos in the same year. It was said that he was beaten by a group of pagans during one of their festivals when they caught him out on the streets. And he was beaten so severely that he died uh, two days later from his bruises and broken bones that he suffered at the hands of these people. It was in Ephesus John spent his old age, and if not uh, as an active preacher, on account of his age, at last uh, surviving as last surviving apostle of Christ, he must have had been a dominating uh, dominating influence among the preachers. Uh, tradition tells us that even when John was too able, too old, too feeble to stand and speak or anything, they would carry him to and from his house to the church on a couch. And all he was able to say is just love, love one another, love one another. But he he went to church the day he died, even having to be carried there. In a sense, this was John's home church. This was where he would, uh, like nowadays we all have home church, we have homecoming that we go to. This is John's home church here that we're talking about. Uh, John wrote uh, the gospel, three epistles, and revelations here in, a, in a Ephesus. Three of Paul's epistles related to Ephesus, Ephesians, and First and Second Timothy. And it is in this uh, region that is thought that, uh, that 
The two epistles of Peter and Jude were first issued and read to the congregations. Ephesus, about halfway between Jerusalem and Rome, was the approximate geographic center of the Roman Empire. And it had in John's own lifetime become the approximate geographical and numerical center of Christian population in the world. <coughs> after ten years after John's death, the emperor Trajan sent Plipney into Asia to, to investigate. Said, is this the Christian something we need to start persecuting again? Do we need to kind of run them out of the city? But he wrote back to Trajan and says, we, we can't do it. He said, all the pagan temples are empty. He said, they're all switched to Christianity. We'd have to kill the whole city. He said, he said, all the other temples are deserted. So it spread just in that short of time to where it took over the whole city. Uh, it had been just six to six years uh, since Pentecost and the birth of the church at Jerusalem. The church everywhere had made a phenomenal growth. It was before the days of the church building that they had met in halls, homes, or wherever they could. Not a great central temple like Diana had or anything like that, but hundreds of small congregations meeting wherever they could. Yet the letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. Hundreds of congregations, yet one church, as it should be, and as it should be even to this day. Uh, in verse 1, we see, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the golden lampstands. Uh, we talked about this uh, last week, about the meaning of the seven stars, which these are the seven, which either the seven head elders or the seven preachers that Jesus Christ, and that he holds them in his right hand, the hand of power, the hand of protection, so he's got very tender care of him, and that he is walking among the churches. He is in their presence. Every time believers gather to worship, he is there. Uh, think about that the next time you're worshiping. Jesus is right here, right now, in His Spirit, in His presence, walking among us. He sees and hears all that we do and say. He knows our thoughts and our hearts of all. Uh, he knows where your mind is and what you are thinking about. So for some of that, that will be a blessing. For others, that might scare you to death. I hope I, I would think that all of us here are in that first part, but... God is here worshiping with us and he sees how we worship and what we're thinking about where our minds are at. Ben, I noticed every one of these start out with to the angel. Is that, I know Jesus is here, but is it seemingly that there's an angel that's kind of here? No, the angel is simply another word for messenger. messenger. So this is, God, this is God's messenger. This would be the eldership or maybe a head elder. Uh, we talked about all elders are equal and all have the same power and the same authority. But usually in a congregation... There's going to be one who's more senior that people would look up to. Uh, I know with Maple Avenue, it was Collis Ray. He wasn't the head elder. He wasn't in charge by no means, but when people wanted something or they wanted an opinion, they would go to him. And so it's either referring to that held elder or to maybe to the preacher, the one that's bringing the message every week and teaching the classes every week. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of confusing a little bit. It can be, but that's, that's what that word el, uh, angel, it's translated messenger, mm -hmm. is a better interpretation of it. Uh, verse 2, Jesus says, He sees our work, our struggles, our difficulties. He says, I know your deeds and your labor and your perseverance. Uh, so Jesus knows what we're going through. Jesus sees our struggle. He's here with us. He's going with us every day. He knows what we're going through. He's been through it himself. That's the whole point of him coming down to earth. He knows and he can relate. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. 
He knows what it's like to watch someone sick and die. He knows all these things. Remember his good friend Lazarus. He had to watch and experience him death, die. And it broke his heart. You, you see him crying and stuff. So he knows everything we've gone through, Jesus went through. And he went through for us so he would know better how to help us and intercede for us. It says that you uh, test those who call themselves apostles but are not. False apostles. <clears throat> All right. So how many apostles were there? Twelve. If you ask most people, they're going to say twelve. That's not right. Uh, so we're going to look at here. Uh, I'm going to kind of go over these kind of quick, but uh, I'll give you some Bible verses if you want to look back through them. Uh, so first, we got the 12 that we know. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Zebuzi, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot. And then, of course, we know that Matthias replaced Judas. So that's 13. Then we know Paul. Paul became an apostle, so that makes 14. What about Barnabas? Go, uh, so go to 1 Corinthians 9 and uh, read verses 5 through 6, Melvina and Maria. Go to Acts 14, and I'm going to have you read verse 4 and 14 after Melvina. Five and six. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So he says, we, other apostles. So he's referring to him and Barnabas. Barnabas was an apostle. He says, don't we have the same right as all the other apostles? So Maria, Acts 14, 4 and verse 14. Fourteen four, and then after that, skip down and get verse fourteen. But the multitude of the city was divided; part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. All right, so there we see apostles. He's talking about plural. So now we're going to drop down to fourteen and see what plural he's talking about. So when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. So apostles, when the apostles heard this. Paul and Barnabas. So we know there's Barnabas, so that's 15. Uh, and I'm going to butcher some of these other names. Andronicaeus. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll let you read this one. Wilma, Wilma uh, verse 16 and 7. You can pronounce it right way for me there. At Romans 16 and 7. So here we have Adronicus and Junius, two more. So that's 16 and 17. That was Romans 16 and 7. Uh, so that's two more. So that's 17 now. Then we've got James, the Lord's brother. And we see, uh, I'll just go ahead and we'll go back and you can look at these verses later or whatever. But I, we have James, the Lord's brother. And that's Galatians 1 and 19 that describes him as an apostle. Silas or Silvanus, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, 2, and verse 6. Describe him as an apostle. 
Then we've got Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2, 6. So that's that 20. Oh, well, here's another good one. Uh, Wilma, Philippians 2, 25. I ain't even going to attempt that one. Rest of them I'm all right with, but this one I ain't even going to. Philippians 2, 25. Now, the apostle does not appear in most English translations, but in the original Greek, it has his title is listed as Apostolosis. Apostolos. Uh, that's Strong's Word 652. So here is another apostle, if uh, you look at this interpretation. And then we've got Apollos, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 9, and 1 Corinthians uh, 3 and 2, and two unnamed apostles in 2 Corinthians eight twenty eight. So at this point, we've got up to 24. And we, and we could go on and on. Uh, you got Jude, the brother of James, who was considered by the other church an apostle, and, and a great many more that we could go on. That would be the qualification. So, you, you, yes, the apostle was one, uh, except for in Paul's case. Right. Paul did not walk with him, but Jesus came, and I'm sure he witnessed a lot of the things. Uh, so there are exceptions, as Paul states, but that was one of the criteria: is that one who had been with Jesus or seen them, Jesus from the beginning till end, till he was took up. That way, he knew all the teachings. We know that Paul didn't, but Jesus came and visited Paul and gave him the vision of everything happening. So you know, if it was just twelve or thirteen, you could. If it was just 12 or 13, you could know, well, how could the churches not know his fake apostle? You know everybody's name. But us just us that's got history all before us, and we could look back and see all these things and all these names. If we don't know how many there are, how would we expect the church to know how many there are? So there were a lot of false apostles going around, people who claimed to be an apostles. And this church put them to test to prove that they wouldn't. And how do we put them to test? Well, the Bible gave them a lot of uh, instruction on how to do this. Uh, first of all, by their doctrine. The Bible tells us if anyone preaches another gospel other than this one, let them be accursed. If an angel or any, he said, even if an angel from heaven comes down and teaches something different than what you all have heard, don't believe it. He's a false apostle. Yes. So it's making the point that this is how you differentiate the real ones from the fake ones. And also by their powers. This was the main reason that these apostles had these miracle working powers. Because there was thousands of other people going around for gain. You know, they could come in church, well, I'm an apostle. Take all the money, say we're going to take an offering or just fool people, whatever the case may be. Even Jews would come in claiming to be one to try to destroy the church. So God gave them these powers, these Holy Spirit, full baptismal powers that no one else had so that people would know, hey, I'm the real deal. I think they all were. That again, that's how they were differentiated from the real ones from the fake ones and stuff. 
They didn't all maybe receive it the day of Pentecost, but the other apostles could lay their hands on them once they determined them to be that. And notice in the same verse it says, do not tolerate evil people. Now that's uh, not those that are outside the church, but he's speaking about church people only. Paul in another place says, now when I told you to avoid all these evil people, he says, I'm not talking about the world. He said, otherwise you'd have to leave the planet. He said, you couldn't be here if you was going to avoid all them and not eat with them and all that stuff. He says, I'm talking about the people of the church. <clears throat> these people in Ephesians, uh, one of the things that God praised them about is they did not tolerate evil going on. They did not tolerate sin in the church. Uh, if you tolerate evil in the church or sin in the church, it will spread in the congregation like a cancer. Uh, to destroy their, and also will destroy the witness and reputation of the church. So not only will it cause others in the church to sin, but the church will lose its witness. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of places where God commanded the children of Israel to go in and destroy a whole city, a whole nation. Everybody. Don't leave nothing, he said. And the reason for that being, he knew that if he left even one person in this city, that that would come back and, and bite the children of Israel and cause them even to even greater destruction. And we've seen that uh, when... He sent Saul to kill all the, uh, the one group, I forgot their name right now, but he left one, he left the king. And then we see his son Amon later on come into power. So in the story of Esther, we see that he nearly destroyed the whole people of Israel because King Saul didn't, he left this one person alive. He left the king and the king's wife who was pregnant alive. And their descendants nearly came back and destroyed the whole nation of Israel. So that, that's why when you see in the Bible, God isn't being cruel or vicious or mean. But he knows the whole story and he knows if he lets this set there, if he lets this fester, it's going to come back and destroy his people. Uh, <clears throat> next in verses 4 and 5 it says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When I read that the believers of Ephesus had lost their first love, I wonder if this was indictment, uh, indictment could, any in, could in any way be related to Paul's first words in the same church when he wrote his letter in Ephesians chapter 6, 24, when he says, uh, May God's grace be eternally upon you and all who love their Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often used or closed his letters with a blessing of grace. But in Ephesians 6, he especially emphasized the believers of love of Christ. I think the benediction contains a, a longing in the great apostle's heart that there would be no waning of that love. The Ephesians' love, their devotion was one, once consistent and meaningful and satisfying. It resulted in the transformation of the whole city uh, and thinking of people's and people's attitude towards God and towards one another. It turned the whole city upside down. But decades later, as John wrote Revelations, we see that the Ephesians had lost their love. And that's just its a very sad state of affairs, but that's very easy to do. Uh, where is your love of God in the church for, uh, for the, and for the lost today? Are we as passionate about Him today as when we first believed, when we first become a Christian? You know, a lot of us went around when we first become, we, like that new grand, when somebody got a new grandbaby or a new baby. Everybody's going to have to see them pictures whether you want to or not. Everybody, and I, and I want to, don't get me wrong. 
But everyone's going to hear about every little thing that baby does. And everything that little baby does is just, just perfect. Just No one's ever done that before. I mean, it's just it's perfect. And that's great. And that's wonderful. That's the way it should be. And when we first become Christians, a lot of us was like that. But are we now? Are we still like that now? Or have over time we've kind of gotten away from that? Are we just as much on fire as we was then? I hope so. If not, we need to take this warning that Jesus has sent to the church and we need to heed it ourselves. Put it into practice and apply it to ourselves. Verse 6, he says, But I have this, uh, but you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I've, I've talked before about the Nicolaitans. Uh, it is a sect of Gnostic Christians that has taught that the word was. Cr- the world was created and ruled by lesser divinities and that Christ was only an emissary to the remote supreme being. Uh, it's very kind of complicated and I don't understand it all anyway, but, but yeah, that, that, that it's just, just ruled over by these little divinities. Uh, but they, like Balaam of old, tried to introduce into the church the false teachings to fit with their, with their pagan practices and beliefs. They were supposed to be given, gotten their name from Nicholas, from Acts chapter 6 and 5, we see that he was one of the deacons who was established to help see to the need of feeding of the tables. And that he was indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. That he did all these great things and that he had the people looking up to him. So anybody that says that you can't fall away, that once saved, always saved, this is one of many examples in the Bible says that doesn't hold water. Because here we see the Bible tells us plainly that Nicholas was, and here we see that he had fallen away and got perverted, lost his way. And that's what they believe that he really wasn't. But here the Bible, if you're saying that he wasn't, then you're calling God a liar. Because God says it here. And Judas, we all know that Judas, evil heart, but Judas had the Holy Spirit. He cast out demons. He healed people. I mean, he had all these miraculous power. He had the full indwelling. So Judas lost his way too. And there's other examples in the Bible as well. So, so that, that just doesn't hold water with what the Bible teaches. And can kind of be traced back to those other church decades that we looked at where these things were introduced and taught. And once something becomes a tradition, it, you know, it's just near impossible to try to break somebody from believing that way. Uh, the Nicolaitans taught in a community of wives. Uh, we would call this swingers or wife swapping is what we'd call it today. Uh, they taught that adultery and fornication were indifferent to God, that God didn't care and they didn't really matter nothing. They was nothing at all. They wasn't even a real sin. They taught that eating meats offered to idols was perfectly fine. They mixed several pagan rites with Christian ceremonies. Uh, taught that people needed a, a go-between for God. That they had to have a priest give them forgiveness, to confess themselves to and instruct them. The priest or elder were then a God's, considered God's spokesman and ruled over them with an iron fist. It was his way 100%. Didn't matter. He had complete control of the church and uh, could throw you out or do whatever he wanted to you. And he was God's representative or spokesman in that congregation and him alone. Uh, God praised them for hating these false teachers and perverted, were perverting his ways. Uh, and a difference of spirit between truth and error, God, good and evil, 
may be called uh, loving and meekness, but it is not pleasing to Christ. We are to hate their deeds and teachings, not the people themselves. I always tell people God says love the sinner and hate the sin. So we're not to, to hate the people, but we're not to tolerate the evil going on, false teaching going on in church, error going on in church. We're not to tolerate it at all. Uh, God said that uh, that's what he found in their favor. That's what he likes. He says, you didn't put up with it. You ran it out when he was there. That's what we've got the elders for. But even if we didn't have the elders, as individual members of the church, if we heard something that wasn't true, we should stand up and not tolerate it at all. Uh, we are to hate their deeds and their teachings, not the people themselves. Uh, now, that is not to say that we hate all other churches. Uh, we don't agree with the who don't agree with us or hold to everything that we believe. Uh, but what are some examples of things we should hate? Well, churches that hide under the name of Christ but deny the, uh, deny the divinity of Christ. There are some churches who teach that Christ is not the Son of God. That He's just one of God's messengers and one of God's prophets and stuff. We're not, we're, we shouldn't be tolerating that. Churches that mix or pollute water <clears throat> and water down the message of God. Churches that deny the full gospel. That doesn't mean that every church has to believe that we have or that we're to hate them or not fellowship with them. That's not what it's saying at all. But those who do evil, those who teach things that will send people to hell, we should hate. What does it mean to hate their deeds? Again, the deeds, not the person or the person, but their false teachings. To hate it means that we don't tolerate it, that we, uh, do just, uh, that we don't just silently go along with it. We call it out. We preach against it. We talk against it. Uh, verse 7. We're running out of time here. But verse 7 says, We must hear and listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. This clearly shown here that this letter was not meant just for the one church alone. He says, he who has a leader, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So it's not just to this one church alone, but for all of us. And we'll have to, we'll have to stop there and pick back up next week. But uh, we'll pick back up with our uh, closing up and questions and comments on, verse, on uh, Church of Ephesus. Any comments or questions before we do? Thank you all for your attention and your comments.